0: And again, for any of the kids' church, there is an outline out here for you that you can grab. Let's have a word of prayer for the word of God this morning as we come to the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, we just want to thank you this morning. We just thank you that we could um, worship you together and we could join the chorus of brothers and sisters who started our time yesterday afternoon worshiping you their Sunday. And we now have joined in that chorus, and we're sort of uh, closing down the worship, the um, 24-hour worship of, uh, of your people lifting up our hearts, coming together. And um, in doing that, Lord God, we are thankful that you give us worship, you give us fellowship, and you give us your word. We pray today for the word. We thank you for it, Lord. We thank you that it nourishes our souls, that it guides our hearts and our ways. And Lord, um, it is a privilege to preach this word and an awesome responsibility before the living God. And so I come humbled by the word itself and humbled in presenting it and ask Holy Spirit that you will take this word and you will speak it to each heart as each heart needs to hear it, Lord God. We pray that out of this time, you will illumine our hearts. In conviction, you will lead us to humbling and repentance. And then, Lord, in application, you will bring transformation that we will become more like Jesus. And in this, prepare us to come to the table together that our souls may be refreshed and our faith strengthened. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Good to see you. If you haven't been with us, we're uh, basically this is the next to last sermon in the book of 1 John. We've been going through this this summer, um, and it's been a wonderful book to go through. John really speaks powerfully in this book uh, to people who are struggling with what it is to have real faith. Uh, I wanted to start by asking a question. How many of you have ever taken a test? Yeah, and how many of you like tests? I didn't see many hands go up. Yeah, tests are, you know, what, what are they? They're, they serve a purpose, right? They serve a purpose because uh, we see what we know. Uh, we actually, they, they put us out there and we can't lie anymore. We, we can't have counterfeit, oh, I'm a grade A student when my work is a grade C student. You know, these are the things that uh, tests do. And as I was thinking about this first John, there's, there's a lot about tests. And um, I was reading an article in the inquiry. Yes, I do still read the paper in the morning. I know many of you don't, um, but I love getting it delivered. I love sitting down with my cup of coffee and reading it. Just call me old school, but I love the paper. And uh, there's always some interesting op-ed pages in the paper. And um, this this, uh, Thursday, I was reading one, and I thought, this is really interesting because It's a lot of what John is doing in what he's uh, proclaiming in 1 John. So listen to this. Um, Our city continues to be hit by an unprecedented epidemic, and I don't mean COVID-19. Across all racial and ethnic groups, the number of drug overdose deaths exceeds the number of deaths from homicide. And this only represents a fraction of this ongoing calamity. According to data from 2020, 81% of local drug overdoses now involve fentanyl a painkiller 100 times more powerful than morphine. It is now metastasized, showing up in samples of cocaine, counterfeit pain, and anxiety medications, and other drugs that people have no clue could contain fentanyl. This is killing, as a matter of fact, in 2021, it killed 1,250 people in our city. But that's changed. Last fall, when we began distributing fentanyl test strips in our emergency departments, Fentanyl test strips can be used to test a street drug like cocaine or heroin or a street purchase pain or anxiety pill for the presence of fentanyl before using it. So basically, they now have a test. You can put that picture up. These little strips can save lives. These little strips are now being dispersed in many, many places. So if you are someone you know using drugs, whatever it is, you can test whether or not there's fentanyl in there. If you're someone who's bought illegal medications offline, if you want to be, you know, uh, careful about what you're taking, even though you're taking something that's illegal. But but the reality is, is that these strips, these test strips are saving lives, are saving lives. And that's the point I I want to make with that this morning. What John is doing in his proclaiming uh, these tests for what is authentic faith and what is counterfeit faith is he's actually saving lives. He's actually saying, this is life, and this is death. This is real faith, and this is counterfeit faith. That's what he's been doing, and he's been doing it by presenting a number of tests throughout the first four chapters. And maybe you begin noticing it, that they begin to repeat themselves. There's the test of whether or not you're moral and you have a righteousness, like you're living out the character of God as it's expressed through his word. The second test moves from that to social. Are we people who are loving in the way that God wants us to love, in the way that's Christ-like in our love, where we are loving people in the same way that God loves people? And the third one is, is it guided by truth? Are these things guided by truth? We would call that doctrine, or we would say, is our belief based on truth? And John keeps going back around on these topics. And right now, as we move to chapter 5, he begins to bring all three of them together. And that's what he's beginning to do in chapter 5, and that's where we're going to be starting today. We're going to be looking at the first five chapters, and then we're, uh, first five verses, and then we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 12. So let me now read 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you're filling out your kid's church, here's some of the things that you're going to be answering. The first is the key element that makes possible everything John has been proclaiming in the first four chapters is the reality of being born of God. We can call it being born again. Or another way of describing this is to call it regeneration, that we have been regenerated. We have been born again. And and I want to look at this idea of regeneration because I think it's really important for us to understand this, especially when we see this connected to faith. because spiritual regeneration brings to life that which was dead. Okay? We we talk about regeneration of cells and of different uh, types of things in our culture and medicine and biology, but this is a little bit different. Spiritual regeneration brings to life that which was dead. And I'm going to put up uh, something that uh, gives a little bit more of the meaning of it so, so you can get a, a sense of, of what this really means. So, uh, children, if you fill out your outline, certainly this first part is an answer for you. Regeneration, it's the instantaneous supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. That's pretty clear, right? Uh, the term regeneration only occurs twice in the New Testament but the concept of a new birth or new creation occurs more frequently. In the Old Testament, the metaphor often employed is a new or circumcised heart. So this is sort of the idea here. What happens in this regeneration? A change of heart or governing disposition. Regeneration is a complete change in the governing disposition of the individual. Prior to the new birth, the governing heart attitude, which control one's dominant motives, was hostility, enmity, and hatred toward God and spiritual things. It's an instantaneous miracle. In short, there is no middle ground between death and life, and the transition from the one to the other is instantaneous. Strong's assessment is exactly right. Regeneration is an instantaneous change in a region of the soul below consciousness and is therefore known only in its results. Regeneration is not... A gradual work and I stand here saying I can testify to that when I heard a resurrection sermon in 1980 I went into a room and prayed I was instantaneously changed everything changed the way I looked at the Word of God my dream life changed my values changed music that I listened to changed Uh, The way I saw the world began to change. The Word became something I wanted to go to and not run from. The commandments of God were things that I saw as a delight. I mean, everything about me changed. Now, how did that happen? Right? I didn't do it. It was supernatural. It is regeneration. It is a work of God and His Holy Spirit alone. We have nothing to do with that change. It's a work of God and a wonderful work of God. And the Apostle John begins to speak about, over these chapters, here are the evidences of being born again. Here are the evidences of regeneration. So children, there's six of them. There's two for you to pick out. The first is believing that Jesus is the Christ. This is the very essence. He starts the whole book in saying the incarnation is key. It's the cornerstone of what's going on. Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He's the promised God in the flesh. He is the one who brings salvation. He is the one who's laying out his life for us. He's the one that brings forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption. It's this Jesus. He is the Christ. That's the first evidence in your heart. The the then desire to live a life that reflects more the character of God and less the character of our own hearts and the world around us. That we now begin to be delivered from habitual sinning, from always sinning, from always this deep sense that now we're being convicted by the Holy Spirit. We're repenting of those sins and God is working in us and making us more like Jesus. That we begin to have an overcoming faith. We're going to be talking about that today. An overcoming faith And we have a love, God's love, for brothers and sisters and for even our enemies, that we now have a love that is like the love of God for us and for other people. And that's being worked in our hearts. And then there's this desire to obey the commandments of God. And again, we're going to be talking about that today. But these are the evidences of regeneration. And this is what John has been talking about in 1 John. We begin to see these things in our lives. These are a test. Is our faith authentic? These are the things that say, yes, your faith is authentic. So there's always the question, right, theologically, what comes first, regeneration or faith? And we're not going to get into that whole dialogue, all right? And if you're here and that's something you struggle with, well, I'm going to give you my answer. Um, Born again, regeneration comes first. And when you look at this text, the text and the way the Greek is written, the actual tenses of these verbs uh, are really different, right? So the idea is born of God is in a perfect tense. The perfect tense means a past event with a continuing consequence. A past event with a continuing consequence. Faith is in the present tense, a present continuing activity. So born again started it, continues, and faith came when we were regenerated in our hearts to see our deep need and our wanting to go in repentance to Jesus. So that's the idea behind here. And I believe that Ephesians 2.4 really speaks to that. If you could put that up, that'd be great but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, do we, is that where it ended? Okay. Maybe I'll have to do it here. God who is rich in mercy, you're right, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Do you see what it says? He who is rich in mercy, listen, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And it's by grace you have been saved. And then he goes on a little further in that chapter to say, and grace is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. So we are people who have been regenerated through a truly total work of God. We have nothing to do with it. And our faith is a gift. I'm glad you got that Theological lesson, and uh, if you have any concerns about it, come to me afterward. But, but it, it's important for us to understand because then he moves into this idea that everyone who loves the father loves the child as well. Born again into his family. It's this idea that, hey, I'm the father, I have children, my children are part of our family, and we love one another. We love the father, And and this is something that I think cuts across many things because this is the common ground of Christians. This is it. That we are born into the family of God. It's not race, it's not class, it's not culture, it's not language or any other distinction, only a common birth in Jesus Christ and a common desire that he is the Lord of our lives. So this means we don't limit our love to our own denomination, our own network, our own liberty communion, to our own social or financial status, to our own race, to our own political perspective, to our own exact theological perspective. Because when we're born of Christ, we're born into the family. How many of you, this is a good test, how many of you Everybody in your family thinks the same. Yeah, we laugh. We laugh. Of course that's not true, right? There's disagreements. You get around the table, and this person has a political perspective. This person has this perspective. And around our table, it gets a little loud. I don't know about your table. But this is the same with Christianity, right? But it doesn't mean that we don't belong to one another in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that God is our Father. It doesn't mean that we are a family together. Yesterday, for us who went down to the outreach down on Diamond Street with our brothers and sisters at Verity and Vision and Missions, well, there was a picture of that, right? What do we have? We had people from all over, different social status, different race. You know, we could go through the list of what we were different and certainly different theologies. But here we were, the family of God on a street in the middle of the city preaching the word of God, loving people and giving them things that are necessary for them and bringing people in. Like this is what it's all about. And this is what John is getting at when he's talking about these things. This is authentic Christianity. You want to see it? It's right there. There's a picture. Go to Revelation 5. Every tribe and nation and people will be coming before the throne of God. This is what it's all about. This is what we're moving towards. But, brothers and sisters, that's not what's happening in our culture, is it? The church is growing more divided, more judgmental, more hatred towards one another. There's so much division over things that by God's grace, we could disagree with, but why would we hate a brother and sister because of that? Why would we not share a meal with them? Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. As fathers and mothers, when our children don't get along, it breaks our hearts. Does it not break God's heart? that his children are not living in unity together, are not loving one another in the way he's called us to love one another. And I know it isn't easy. And I know there's all kinds of complexity to it. But if our first prayer isn't, Lord, show me how to love people, we are starting in the wrong place. We are starting in the wrong place. And as he moves then, as this challenge comes, he moves and he leads us to the commandments. He leads us to the commandments. And I think John has been hinting all along about the commandments and obeying the commandments and what's so important about that. And why is it that when we live out of the commandments, it means that we're loving God and we're loving other people. And and as he's been hinting at this, he's now going to make it explicit that loving God and others is informed by obeying his commands. His commands are the blueprint for what love looks like in relationships, and these commands are not burdensome. So if this is true, I want to take a moment to reflect on the commandments and the stereotypes that surround them, because if you're like me growing up, I saw the commandments as burdensome. I saw them as killing my joy. I saw them as taking away the things that I want. I saw it as fire and brimstone, and I didn't want nothing about it. Maybe it's the way it was taught, but I think more was about my own heart. But let us I'm going to take a couple pictures, and let's look at these pictures and get an idea of where maybe some of those stereotypes come from. So put that first picture up. This is Mount Sinai. And when it describes Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, it, there's, a, you know, there's a real description. There's lightning, there's smoke coming up from the mountain, God's on the mountain, and, and Moses has to walk up the mountain. So that sounds a little scary, and people aren't supposed to approach it. So, uh, whoa, okay, so there could be a little bit of like, okay, what's, what's really going on here? Well, uh, put up the next, next picture. And I think that this is sort of the picture we get with Moses getting the commandments is that lightning is striking and Moses is standing there and like God's coming down on him like fire and brimstone and and that this is the law and you better do it or else. Sort of, sometimes that's the way it's even been preached, right? But let's put the next picture up. And you see this picture? God is talking with Moses. Moses. He's actually in relationship with Moses. And when you begin reading through that Exodus, it says that God and Moses spoke. They actually had relationship. There was interaction between God and Moses. There was a relationship. It wasn't about fire and brimstone. It was God explaining and bringing to Moses what we could call the manufacturer's handbook. In other words, he's saying to Moses, look, your people have been made in my image. Sin has separated us, but I have brought us together to call us our own. And and we need now to know, you need now know what it is to live the character of heaven on earth, what was really intended. And what the commandments are, are a way in which we relate to one another that reflects the character of heaven on earth. And that was God's intention with the commandments because our hearts needed to be educated. And so, uh, go go to that. Let's just go through the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. See, we move from that relationship with God where we see God as, as the only God, the God who loves us, the God who's created us, the God who receives all the glory, and then the next thing is, from that vertical relationship comes those relationships that are horizontal with one another. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or anything of your neighbor's. See, see how that works? Now, if that was really happening in, to- in today's world, Will we not have something radically different than what we see in the news and everything else that we're in if people were living this way? This is what God was bringing about. And then you go to Exodus 21, and he's talking about how do you deal with personal injuries? You go to Exodus 22. What is protection of your property? What is your social responsibilities? In Exodus 23, uh, laws of justice and mercy. All of these are about how we relate and love and come alongside one another as human beings who are living out the character of heaven and earth. Why would these be burdensome to us, right? How many of you ever rode, rode on a roller coaster? Anybody? I love roller, I loved it. I mean, now, especially with the new, you know, loops and all that, it gets gets a little too much for me. But. One of the things that uh, you do on roller coasters is if you're going down one of the old ones, they will put a bar in front of you, right? And it would protect you. And that way you could really do what? You could enjoy the ride, right? You, you could hold on. And when you were going down, you feel like you're falling out? No. And, and and just think about life as a roller coaster. There's all kinds of things in life that happen, right? We're going down the roller coaster. And, and the idea is, is that the commandments are just like that bar holding you in or the harness holding you in. They are the things that make you enjoy the ride of life. They are the things that make you enjoy life. These commandments, if we live them out, give us joy in our relationships, give us the ability to love one another and respect one another. And so it's, they are really that made to help us. And Jesus even explains that when he goes to the Sermon on the Mount. And he takes that and he begins to explain it even a little bit further about how this takes place. And so this idea that they are burdensome, that they're, they're hard, um, it's not what Jesus says in John 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in Jeremiah 31, the promise was for those that are regenerated, listen to this promise. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. You see that? Maybe now you might think about the commandments differently. Children, you didn't get fire and brimstone this time when somebody was telling you about the commandments. They were actually telling you this was God really speaking to us about how it is to live lives, that God will live, and as we saw Jesus live when he was on the earth. He did this. When you read the Gospels, that's what you're seeing. They're being lived out in Jesus' life. It's just wonderful thing that God has given us. And, and, and for a moment now, I want to take us and, and talk a little bit about, I think, a mindset that's becoming much more prevalent among the believers. And, and what, what we see happening is believers are taking general principles from the Scripture, like love, justice, mercy, peace, the kingdom of God, and then they make the principles, the criteria of what is right and wrong without letting the specific commands and promises of Scripture determine the content of the criteria. Now, let me me explain that a little bit. See, the principle is lifted out of Scripture and what is happening is The command itself of what love is is being ignored and what's being put in this place is a personal agenda or the way that I feel or the way that my culture is telling me that this principle is supposed to be. This is the way love is supposed to express itself. This is the way we are supposed to enter into racial relationships. This is what the political agenda would be. And it's taking the principles but not having the content of the commands guide and lead. So it's more about desires and feelings and social pressure. And we see this, right? We see it in all that people are believing in sexuality. We see it in ethical issues. We see it in gender issues. We see it in racial issues. We see it in political issues. And we have to be careful. That's why these commands are so precious to us. Because they speak to us about these things. And and they don't say don't love, but they say love or speak the truth in love. There's a balance between that truth that's being talked about, that John has been talking about, and the love that we are supposed to be expressing to other people. And if we're not in this word, if we're not looking at these commands, if these commands aren't filling our hearts and minds, then we will be sucked in to the social pressure, we will be soaked into what is our feelings, and we will not have the Spirit of God illuminating in our hearts what is truly authentic as we step into these situations. Now, this is complex, right? I'm not saying it's easy. There's a lot of layers here. But i got to say, what I see, the trend is we're more than willing as a church to be influenced by the social pressure and feelings than we are by the commands of God. And we need to, we need to help one another in this. We're going to have courageous conversations as we go on in the life of this church. How are they going to be led by the Holy Spirit if the people of God aren't basing these things on the truth of a word. We need to pray for and with one another, and yes, it's a fine line, but you know who walked that line perfectly? Jesus. And we can walk that line with him as we pray, as we go to the word, as we step into our world, not step away from our world. That's not what God wants us to do. Step into our world. We are called to be those who, who share and, and witness and are living out that love in front of people so that they will know. So by God's grace, he's going to help us do that. And, and so uh, there's a deep sense as he moves us in this that they are not burdensome to whoever is born in God these commandments, but as a result of these commandments and us living this way, we will overcome the world. We will overcome the world. John is saying that everyone who is born of God has faith, and faith trusts the promises of God, and it is faith that overcomes the world. And this takes away the burdens of the commandments, see? The commandments become burdensome because the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the children are filling this out, tempt us to believe that obeying God's commands is not satisfying as of disobeying them, right? I believed this for years. I believed it for years. This is what John meant when he talked about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the flesh. See, it's a burden to wait till marriage to have sex. It's a burden. It's a burden to be honest on my tax returns. It's a burden to consider and treat others as I would treat myself. It's a burden to admit when I'm wrong. It's a burden to humble myself and to ask for forgiveness. It's a burden to do that. But faith says to every temptation, no. No. Faith says, no, I will not buy the lie. I will not buy the lie. These things are not a burden to me. They are going to destroy the things that I love, the relationships that I have, the integrity that's in my heart my relationship with God himself, they are going to destroy that, not satisfy. They'll satisfy for a moment in the flesh, and then they will disappoint and not be enough. See, true satisfaction is to be found in God's ways, God's promises, God's love. Nothing can compare to the joy of fellowship with God now and the glory to be revealed and what is to come, brothers and sisters. And this is why, I really believe John moves right to a testimony here. He now says, I, "This is truth, I'm bringing it to you. This is, this is real. This is what it's like to be someone who loves, someone who is in Christ. But, but let you now have a testimony." And guess whose testimony he gives? God's testimony. You can't have any greater testimony. So let me read verses 6 through 12. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Hallelujah. This is an amazing word. You know, John's sort of speaking now as if he's in a courtroom, and John's bringing forward witnesses to testify on Jesus' behalf. And what they're testifying in is that he is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one who's brought salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, glory. He's brought and opened up the door for the Holy Spirit to be running rampant in the world and in our hearts. He has given word life, and he has given eternal life. That's what he's talking about here. And he highlights, if the kids are filling this out, three witnesses, water, blood, and the Spirit. Three witnesses water, blood, and the Spirit. God has supplied an infallible, a faultless, a perfect witness to testify. When he looks, talks about the water, the water represents the water of Jesus' baptism. At Jesus' baptism, God spoke, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in his baptism, he identified with the sins of humanity. And the blood represents Jesus' death on the cross in our place, making atonement for our sin. And the spirit testifies to the truth of these facts, sealing these truths to our hearts, an internal testimony that is supernatural. We talked about that in the regeneration. Right? These are the three that are testifying, even right now. And what they fought against was the Antichrist. What they fought against was the people who were out there saying, God could never die on a cross. Jesus had the Spirit come in him, and then the Spirit left him when he was on the cross. There's no way that God dies. But no, God says, if Jesus did not die, there is no forgiveness, there is no reconciliation, there is no adoption, there is no salvation, there is no relationship with God. So don't make me out to be a liar. So he's speaking about there. And I love what 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 14 says. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, Holy Spirit, be poured out right now into the hearts of our children and our families and our neighbors. Holy Spirit, rain down revival. Holy Spirit, come and regenerate hearts. Holy Spirit, do what you can only do. And brothers and sisters, how amazing it is that what he does through the Son is that we have life and we have eternal life. We have life. That's what it says. We have life in the sun. The sun brings life. You know, when we have something, it, uh, it gives you what it can, right? If you have $100, it gives you what $100 can give you. If you have a dog, the dog gives you what the dog can give you. If you have a lawyer, the lawyer stands and does what the lawyer is supposed to do for you, right? When you have Jesus, you have what Jesus can give. You have what Jesus Can give. What can he give? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self control, comfort, purpose, security, godly wisdom, forgiveness, restoration of brokenness in relationships, a deepening of faith and his presence in adversity and in grief and in sorrow. And all of this, we more and more begin to experience the beginning of eternal life here with the living hope in Christ that one day through his resurrection power, we will be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. In Colossians 1, verse 27, it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Brothers and sisters, that's why John leads us to this, because he's saying... What you can do is what Christ is able to do in you. You are able to love the way God loves. You are able to forgive the way God forgives. You are able to step into situations with truth in the way that God has. You really are the witnesses as Jesus was. And so now you're in this world with a purpose, and that purpose is to do what? That purpose is to love. That purpose is to proclaim truth. That purpose is to step into other people's lives. That that purpose is to be that testimony that God is alive and loves everyone. And he hasn't left us as orphans, but he's left us with everything we have in an almighty God, and even more, he's left us with a future that we can only begin to get glimpses of. How amazing is that? How many of you know about Steve Jobs? Anybody know who Steve Jobs is? Yeah, we all know Steve Jobs, right? Co-founder of Apple, billionaire, died at 56, of pancreatic cancer. When he was dying, here's some of the things that he said. I have reached the pinnacle of success in business. In other people's eyes, my life is a success. However, aside from work, I've had little joy. At the end of the day, wealth is just a fact I've gotten used to. Right now, lying on my hospital bed, reminiscing all my life, I realize that all the recognition and wealth I took so much pride in has faded and become meaningless in the face of imminent death. Love your family, spouse, children, and friends. Treat them right. Cherish them. Whether the house in which you live in is 100 or uh, or 1,000 square meters, loneliness is the same. You will realize that your true inner happiness does not come from material things of this world. Whether you travel first class or economy, if the plane crashes, you go down with it. Therefore, I hope you realize when you have friends, brothers, and sisters with whom you discuss, laugh, talk, sing, talk about north, south, east, west, or heaven and earth, this is real happiness. Brothers and sisters, that's what we have in Christ Jesus. This is what we have when we live the life of love, when we obey the commandments of God, when we step into the situations that he has called us to. This is why John keeps coming back because this is the result of authentic faith. And we have that in Christ Jesus, our Savior. So let's take this and let's begin thinking upon these things. What is it? How are you with the word and the promises and the commands of God? What do you do with them? Do you excuse them? Do you rationalize them away? Do you put them in a corner and say, that's That's okay, but there's much more wisdom out there in our world than here. And are you looking at your relationships? How are they right now? Are they broken? Or do you see yourself in relationships that are growing in love, and as a result, there's a joy that goes deep that transcends even the sorrows and griefs of our lives? Because this is what John is talking about. This is what he's not only calling us to, but he's saying, this is the result of authentic faith. This is what it's all about. Don't settle for something different. It's a lie, and it leads to death and destruction. But come. So even now, brothers and sisters, we're coming to the communion table, and it's it's a perfect time for us to be thinking about these things. Because this table is pointing us to all the things we were talking about this morning. This is saying that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. This tells us, remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember that he came into this world. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect, sinless life and then took that life and put it on the cross said on the cross, when he was sacrificed, he stood in our place that God would say, through Jesus, we are forgiven, and his righteousness now stands before us and God. This table tells us that as forgiven and reconciled, we can approach God, and we can be people who live lives of love because that love has been expressed in Jesus, and the promises of God are yes and amen. This table is telling us, remember this. You're living in a 24-7 world of all kinds of sound bites and TikTok and news things and, you know, everything that's going on. Remember this. In this moment, remember this. This is the God who loves you. And then in this moment, we have the Holy Spirit. In this moment, right now, the Holy Spirit is speaking to your hearts. The Holy Spirit knows your hearts. And he knows where you're struggling. And in this moment, as you come to the table, there's going to be a time for you to bring your hearts before the Lord. And to know again the forgiveness that we have in Christ. But the table doesn't end there. Sometimes we want it to end there. It doesn't. This table looks forward to his second coming when he's going to come again and bring us home. We're going to be like him when he appears. We are going to walk with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth where there's no more pain and suffering and grief and sorrow and the brokenness of this world. That's what this table is telling us today. It's saying, enjoy the commands of God. Ask me to empower you to live this way. Be people of love in this world. By God's grace, be his witness and his living epistles and the aroma of Christ. That's what he's calling us to. That's what this table is all about. So in these quiet moments, I'm going to ask you, take what the Holy Spirit's given you right now. Come to the cross. Come to Christ. Seek forgiveness so that we can come to the table of faith together and have our souls refreshed and our faith strengthened. Take some time before the Lord this morning. Lord, how wonderful it is that we can come as your children as the Spirit opens our hearts to lay before you our rebellion and our doubts, our lack of love and forgiveness, our addictions. Oh, Lord, we we just come and say thank you that we can bring them to you. Where we struggle, Lord, with some of the circumstances of our lives. Uh, we just lay them before you, Lord God. Where we, Lord, walk and uh, have a sense that we are more orphaned than we are a child of God. Deliver us from these things, Lord God, we pray. Even in this moment, thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for the power in the blood. Thank you, Lord, that we are washed as white as snow. Thank you, Lord, you restore our souls. Thank you for this table that reminds us of how much you love us and how your love can flow through us to others. May that happen, Lord, in our lives. May that happen in your church, especially in this day, Lord God. We pray for you to come with power, Holy Spirit. So in this touching, let us dare to believe that we're forgiven. And our forgiveness as children, may we come and receive this meal that you will strengthen us for our journey today and in the weeks to come, Lord God. We just thank you and we give you praise and we give you glory. In Jesus' name. Jesus, on the night before he died, he took bread, as I am taking it in his name, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Take, eat, and do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the wine, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which has been shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. We're going to come down now and we're going to minister the sacrament. You can come down either row to receive it and go back to your seats. And then I would encourage you to take it when you get back to your seats. We're also going to be singing during this time.
1: I'm honey